Monday's a day off for a lot of pastors, including myself. And a couple Mondays ago, I was privileged to join our seventh grader, Evan, and his class on a field trip to the Grand Canyon. Some of the mailers were there, too, that day. It was an interesting day weather-wise. That's the day the, the windstorm whipped through here. I heard an F1 tornado even touched down up in Williams. But we drove up there. It wasn't raining. But by the time we got close, the rain started coming. It got cloudy. And we, we all got out of the bus, which was somewhat of a step of faith by the teacher, <laughs> taking all these junior hires under a pavilion. And I was wondering to myself, are we just going to end up packing up and going home? But she had a great idea. She said, hey, let's go to the visitor center for a while, see if some of this disperses. Because not only was it rainy, it was foggy. And of all the places you don't want to have fog, right? It's the Grand Canyon. So we went in that visitor center for a while, came back to the pavilion, and she said, hey, it looks like the rain's going to let up for about an hour. We're going to spend some time at Bright Angel. And we did. And I want to tell you something. While the, the rain and the fog out there could affect our perception of the, the wonders and the glory of the Grand Canyon, they did nothing to affect the actual wonder and glory of the Grand Canyon. We got to peek through and see it in all of its majesty. It was unchanged by the clouds and the rain and the fog. So I'm glad we persisted and went and took a look. Why do I mention that? Well, as we wrap up the, the book of Esther, we remember this was a dark time at periods in this book, a decree of death upon all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And every one of us who's sitting here today has dark times in our own lives, clouds, rain, fog, this trial, that trial. And sometimes they can affect our perception of the wonder and majesty of who God is. But one thing I take away from the, the book of Esther is that those trials, those clouds, those storms do nothing to his actual wonder and power and glory. He remains who he is unchanged by the clouds and fog in our lives. And sometimes we need to ponder this. Rather than checking out and giving up on God, what we need to do is persist in faith and look to him through eyes of faith to see him for the wondrous, powerful God that he is. Think of what we've learned from the book of Esther. Think of what Psalm 115.3 says. Our God is in the heavens he does all that he pleases. Is that your God? That's the true God. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Not one of them. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There's that all again. All things. And we stood in amazement, if you're like me, as we went through the book of Esther and saw the different ways he did this. Not in the, the big flashy miracles, but in events that many people would call happenstances or coincidences. But we know far better, having been in this book, that like J. Vernon McGee put it, God really is the hand in the glove of human history. 
So before we jump into the final two chapters today, and lest you say two chapters, Pastor, what are you thinking about? We're not going to hit every verse, and chapter 10 is only three verses, so it's okay. <laughs> I want to walk us through a little bit of what we've seen over the last couple of months of how God worked. You remember chapter 1, we talked about the fact that God is at work in the foolish choices of pagan rulers. He used the impulsive drunken choices of the Persian king Xerxes to make an opening in the kingdom for Queen Esther, one of his Jewish children. Chapter 2, we talked about how God is in control and at work in the location and timing of our lives on planet Earth. You are where you're at and when you're at, and God uses that in his sovereign purposes. You remember Mordecai and Esther lived right there in Susa, the, the city of the king, and God would use them to help bring about the deliverance for his people. Chapter 3, God is at work even in the plans of powerful, wicked men. That's where we met Haman, the enemy of the Jews who hated Mordecai and, and issued a decree with the king's permission to destroy every Jew, man, woman, and child in the whole Persian Empire from Egypt to Pakistan, if you remember. But we talked about how when he rolled those dice, those pure as they were called back then, to set the timing of it, the day for destruction came 11 months after the dice roll, which gave God 11 months to bring about his desired plan of deliverance. Chapter 4, God is at work in our dependence on him as his children and our steps of faith. You remember Mordecai told Esther, hey, you are queen in this land for such a time as this. She was hesitant to talk to the king about protecting the Jews, but he said, you're here, Esther, for such a time as this. So Esther said, fast for me, and I will fast. That fasting shows what? Dependence on the Lord. And then I'll approach the king. Remember, she said, if I perish, I perish. She put her life fully in the hands of God. Chapters 5 through 7, we talked about how God is at work in the ins and outs of our daily schedules. That includes Monday. It includes Wednesday. It includes Friday. You remember, Esther finally got an audience with the king. But instead of asking him right away to save her people, she delayed two times. And humanly speaking, we're scratching our heads saying, why did she do that? And the Bible does not tell us why she did it. But we know why God allowed it. It allowed time for a couple things. Remember, for, for Haman to rage against Mordecai again and go home and build a stake 75 feet high to put Mordecai the Jew on. It gave time for the king to have a sleepless night where Mordecai the Jew was elevated in the eyes of the king. It gave time for wicked Haman to be humiliated as he led exalted Mordecai through the city of Susa. And finally, wicked Haman was hanged on the stake 
that he built for Mordecai, the Jew. Chapter 8 last week, we saw that God is at work in our promotions to places of influence. You remember where Haman had been, Mordecai was promoted. Mordecai the Jew is now second in command in the whole Persian Empire. And he sent out a second decree with the king's permission, telling the Jews, what? That they, yes, that they were authorized to defend themselves on the day that Haman had established to destroy them. We get to chapter 9 and 10 this morning, that fateful day came. And we're going to see how this deliverance of God's children finally came about. And I want to look at four things here. First, I want to talk about a great reversal. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 9, verse 1. In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. God brought about a great reversal of Haman's desire. His people overcame those who would attack them. Verses 2 and 3 tell us a little bit of how this happened. No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. Now I see two things happening here that helped the Jews. One just on a human level. Mordecai's decree that the Jews could defend themselves went out months before this day. That gave people throughout the vast Persian Empire a lot of time to think about, hey, do I really want to fight against a people who are now authorized to defend themselves. Right? That could serve as a deterrent to someone who says, I don't want to find myself in a battle with them. But I see more than that. I see God's sovereign hand in a couple things here in verse 3 and 2. No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. The royal officials sided with Mordecai because fear of him had fallen on them. You know what that reminds me of? Earlier in Israel's history, as they're approaching the promised land, you know what the book of Joshua tells us? That those people inside the promised land, many of them were trembling with fear because the fear of Yahweh had fallen upon them. I believe God put a fear upon the enemies of the Jews. He was at work. So we see that reversal. Second, I want to talk about the actual victory in battle. You see it in Susa, the, the headquarters where Haman lived and his ten sons still live. You could call it the epicenter of the, the hatred for the, the Jewish people. Verses 6 and 15, when you add them up, tells us that in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 800 men as they defended themselves. Right at the heart of that hatred for them. One historian said, just to appreciate how, how much of a, we'll call this a miracle here. He said, just imagine Jews in Warsaw, Poland, at the height of Hitler's reign. 
somehow being able to overcome the Nazis there. That, that's what we're talking about here. This must have been shocking to those who would oppose the Jews right there in Susa. One thing I found interesting is historians tell us the Nazis were very aware of this book of Esther and the hope that it would give the Jewish people. Some Jews found with copies of this book of Esther were killed instantly. But historians also tell us that several of the Jews imprisoned and going through that dark time had this book memorized. And they would share it amongst each other to give them hope in Yahweh. Susa, it happened. What about the rest of the vast Persian empire? Verse 16, does the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, just a little common sense tells us this empire that stretches from Egypt to Pakistan, the Jews were a vast minority compared to all the other races and peoples there. And yet, according to God's plan, they were able to defend themselves. They had victory in battle. Third thing, I want to talk about a feast that was established. How many of you love a good celebratory feast? I do. Listen to this, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. Can you imagine? They've come so far. Earlier in the book, the de death decree went out, and there was confusion throughout the whole empire. Now there's, there's relief. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, Days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Queen Esther would join Mordecai in sending out word of this victorious feast. And verse 30 says they sent it out in words of peace and truth. Did you know around the world, even today, the Jewish people celebrate this feast known as Purim? It was named that after the poor that, that Haman cast called Purim, and this year, in case you're curious, it was on March 16th and 17th. They have a day of fasting just before the two days of feasting and celebrating, and on that day of fasting, they remember the misery of living under the fear of Haman's decree, but those next two days are a party. They, they get together, they share food, they share gifts, they, they read this book of Esther, and they're a very responsive crowd when they do that in their synagogues or wherever they happen to be. Whenever who's reading says the name of Haman, some of the Jews in the crowd will shout out, may his name be accursed. Some of them will spit on the ground when the name of Haman is mentioned. Some of them will hiss. Some of the kids have rattles that they rattle when they hear the name of Haman. Some of them boo. Some of them jeer. One interesting thing I read, that some of the Jews 
when they, they read the names of the ten sons of Haman, who were told in chapter 9 were hanged on the gallows in these events, whoever reads the passage reads their names in one breath. And this is not easy because these are not names like Bob <laughs> and Joe. In fact, I asked Jaden to do that this week, our oldest son. He, he pulled it off. It, it, it went something like this. You look in chapter 9, verse 6. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men <gasps> and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Espatha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Arasai and Eridai and Visatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha. I say, why did they... <laughs> You say, why did they do that? They did that to remember that they all breathed their last breath together as their enemies were destroyed. What you guys just did at the end of that, though, clapping and cheering, as, as the reader would read the book, anytime they mentioned the name of Mordecai, let, let's try, just, just clap and cheer here, Mordecai. That's what you would hear as they celebrate. And they would sing songs celebrating Yahweh's deliverance of his people in such a dark time. There was a feast established. Fourth thing I want to bring out here is the elevation of God's man, Mordecai. Remember, chapter 1 was all about Xerxes' glory. He's showing it off to the people that come in. Chapter 10, we get a brief mention of his glory, that he's imposing taxes on the whole empire but the focus is on God's man, Mordecai. 10.3 says, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. What a, what a story of God's deliverance, historical events. But there may be some of God's children sitting here today that are children of his through Jesus saying, okay, I, I love that story. I'm glad we went through it. Love that that happened in history. But what, what can I take away from this in my life in 2022? And that's where I want to wrap this message up over the next moments together. I want to talk about how deliverance for God's children then reminds us of deliverance for God's children today. It's the same God, the same covenant-keeping God. And how crucial this deliverance in Esther was for you and I. Because you remember what God had promised Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, centuries earlier. He said in Genesis 12, 3, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How would that blessing come to all the families of the earth? through one of Abraham's descendants, through the nation of Israel, Jesus, right? How would we have that descendant of Abraham if all the Jews were destroyed in the Persian Empire? So it makes me praise God to think that he had you and I in mind, even as he delivered his people, the Jews, right here. And I want to bring this out through a couple sets of two things, because I think it'll help us grasp this a little bit. First, I want to talk about two decrees, two very different decrees. You remember Haman's decree was a decree of death. 
right? Mordecai's was a decree of peace in life. You can defend yourselves. There are still two decrees operational in our world today. The first decree is a decree of death. Romans 3.23. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We die in that state. We have the wrath of God upon us and spend eternity in the lake of fire. That's a decree of death. I'm so thankful that Paul doesn't stop there in the book of Romans. There's a decree of life. You, you, you heard me say that when Queen Esther and Mordecai sent that out, they were words of peace and truth. Here's some words of peace and truth. Verse 24. Go back to 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the decree of life, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. What's it mean to be justified? It means to be made right before God so that you can enter relationship with the God of the universe that we've been talking about. How? By his grace as a gift. It is a gift of his a gracious gift that we do not deserve, nor can we earn, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through Christ's blood, be purchased back, delivered from the death decree. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Somebody say, propitiation, what in the world is that? Propitiation means that his sacrifice on the cross satisfied the Father's wrath against sin. It was satisfied to be received by faith, by trust in Jesus Christ. What's the application here? You do not have to live under the decree of death. Have you come to God through faith in Jesus? Are you living under the decree of life? If so, it's worth celebrating. Amen. I want to talk about two viewpoints on life. Our viewpoint and God's viewpoint. How's, how's our viewpoint? It's temporal, right? It's finite. We walk moment by moment. And, and if you're about to ask a girl to marry you, you don't really know if she's going to say yes or no until, until she does, right? You and I don't know if we're going to be alive on planet Earth 10 years from now, right? We, we kind of take it moment by moment. That's us. What about God's viewpoint? It is eternal. He has a wisdom higher than any wisdom we have. It is infinite. He knows past, present, and future equally clearly. I like Hebrews 12 in the King James Version. Starting at verse 1 there, it says, Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, listen to this, the author and finisher of our faith. He sees it all. He's in control of it all. You go back to the eternal counsels of God, where the Trinity planned a way for salvation, all the way to the future where we're delivered into the eternal kingdom. He's over it all. He's the author and the finisher. We live moment by moment, though, and there's a tension, right, that we feel living here. 
It reminds me of something I saw on Facebook this week. You, you have to go with me on this. My friend Chris posted something that drew me right in. You know, sometimes you'll start reading some words, and you're like, oh, I got to we'll see what, where this is going. He said, what is wrong with people? And that was one of, after one of those angry faces you can put on there. What is wrong with people? This car driving by saw the Halloween decorations in my yard. I watched this dingbat put one of my decorations into his car. I ran out of my house just in time. I tapped on his window and told him to give it back. He denied even having it. Then dingbat number two started tapping. And it has the Seymour, you know how when something's long? So I tap the Seymour. Nothing happens. I tap it again five seconds later. Nothing happens. And after I did that like four or five times, I'm like, I'm the dingbat number two that started tapping. <laughs> he had just typed Seymour. It wasn't a real. So I put in his comments, you got me, buddy. There were several other victims in the list, too. <laughs> but I share that because life can be like that sometimes. We, we get part of the story. We know what's already happened. But so often we want to see more. What about tomorrow? Is this disease I have going to be healed? What about this situation at work? How's it going to pan out? But we can't always see tomorrow. But I think about this question. I think about what if this sovereign, all-knowing God would let us in on his perspective? And then I think about the fact that according to Jesus in John 16, he has. I want you to listen to his words to his disciples in John 16, verse 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, clarification here. Does that mean he's going to answer every question you have and I have? No. But it does mean that the Spirit has given us everything in here that the apostles tell us we need for life and godliness right now and it speaks much about what is to come does it not think about the wonders of that and think about how many copies of this precious book you have sitting on shelves at your house and I do at my house are we taking the Lord up on that offer this book the spirit has inspired and illumines in our hearts what's the application of this whatever clouds or storms you're going through today Seek the wisdom of the all-knowing God. Don't go forward without it. Now I want to talk about two positions. You, you think about the contrast between early in the book of Mordecai and Esther and later in the book. I, I look at their position and I really see them as desperate beggars. Even though Esther was queen, she had to desperately beg the king for deliverance, right? What do you see at the end? 
with Mordecai. You see him reigning, right? What, what a different position from where it had been. He's reigning alongside with, with Esther. And I want to talk about two positions today. Before Christ, what does Ephesians 2, 1 say? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were spiritually dead apart from Christ without a hope in the world. Just five short verses later, what does Paul tell us? For those who believe in Jesus Christ, it says, he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Believer in Jesus, do you know that's, spiritually speaking, where you're seated today? Seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Do you think of yourself as a citizen of heaven? If so, we need to start thinking heavenly thoughts. How do people respond to God in heaven? How do people respond to each other in heaven? Well, I'm a citizen of there now. I'm just visiting this place. I'm an ambassador of heaven. Does my life bring that to earth? Do my words bring that to earth? How? You say, how can that be true? I don't deserve that. Neither do I. It's through Jesus. Romans 5, 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Who's that? Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Did you notice it doesn't just say we have life? It says we reign in life. We reign in life. That's not because of you. That's not because of me. That's because of Jesus. It's because of what Paul says in Colossians 3.3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Father looks at you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He sees you through the lens of Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. I think about that, and I think about what 10.3 told us about Mordecai. He was great among the Jews. Jesus is great among the Jews, the greatest. Popular with the multitude of his brothers, not, not with his Jewish brothers while he was on earth, but with those of us who would call him our brother today, right? For he sought the welfare of his people. Has anyone else ever sought the welfare of their people more than Jesus has? And I think about Joseph being raised to power in Egypt. I think about Mordecai being raised to power in the Persian Empire. And I think about the fact that these guys are just wispy shadows compared to our Savior who is second to none. What does Ephesians 1 tell us about him? Verse 20, Christ, when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. 
So if you're a weary believer or discouraged today walking through this foreign world, I want to encourage you, lift up your weary head, see Christ, and see yourself as he sees you in him. I want to talk about two feasts. We talked about their feast of Purim and what a great celebration of deliverance that was. I'd like to attend one of those sometime. How about you? There are a couple Jewish congregations in town. Our missionary, Matt Crosswhite, teaches at one on Saturday. I may connect with him next year and see if I can go, go over there. If you want to go, let me know on, on Purim. But I think about another feast of deliverance. I think about Mark 14. As Jesus in that upper room instituted the Lord's Supper. Mark 14, 22 says, As they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Think of the spiritual victory that was achieved through Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection. Do you share in that victory through faith in him? I hope so. And yet, if we're honest, sometimes we look around this world, we look around our, our lives, and we say, man, I, st I still live in a very, very messed up world, a very broken and, and fallen world. We still groan, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, right? We feel the battle raging against the world. That's the world system. Satan reigns over, opposed to God and his ways, right? You, do you feel the constant pressure to conform or suffer in at least some measure? Do you feel that out there? What about your flesh? You and I, though we're a new creation in Christ, we battle this flesh. We have these temptations to live like the old man or the old woman I used to be rather than to live like who I am now. Do you know that battle? Does that battle grow wearisome to you? What about the battle with the devil and his minions? The accuser of the brethren works so diligently to discourage us, to give up, to throw in the towel. Do you know that battle? If so, I have good news for you. There's a final physical deliverance coming from all of those enemies we battle today. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 instructs us to wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You waiting for that day? James 5.8, how many of us could use this today? Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's coming, he's at hand. In God's schedule, it's soon. <laughs> like some lyrics from a contemporary Christian song, sums it up like this. There's a battle up front, but beyond that is the promised land. Even communion itself, the Lord's Supper, hints at this. Because there's a verse we don't often read when, 
when we do communion. But Jesus goes on in Mark 14 after the, the bread and the wine. You know what he says in verse 25? Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Can you imagine drinking it there and then with Jesus? We get a glimpse of that in Revelation 19, verse 6. John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Talk about a celebration. Wow. What's the application here? Celebrate the deliverance that is and the deliverance that is to come. We do those things, we can walk through even this world with the joy and the peace that Jesus promised us. Final one, final set of two. There's two responses. If we read that God is sovereign and in complete control. One is resist him and be crushed or trust him and be blessed. We see many examples of the first throughout the scriptures. Pharaoh, Belshazzar, man with the writing on the wall, Haman in the book of Esther, Satan himself. Don't resist his will. Grab on to the decree of life that he has offered you. Come under the umbrella of his deliverance. When we do that, that doesn't only give us hope for some day, some other place. It gives us hope to hold on to now. I think about the hope and trust and faith that Job had. After all he went through, his economic life was ruined. His children were destroyed. And he had little, possibly none of this that we have. And think about the faith that God gave that man in the middle of that. What did he say? Job 19.25. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. My Redeemer is going to stand on this earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I'm going to be buried, decayed, yet somehow, some way, I'm going to see him in this body whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. I like what Charles Spurgeon commented on this. He said, I know, I know that my Redeemer liveth. To say, I hope so, is comfortable. And there are thousands in the fold of Jesus who hardly ever get much further. But to reach the heart of consolation, you must say, I know. Ifs, buts, and perhapses are sure murderers of peace and comfort. I think about that, and I think about some lyrics I heard this morning from a band named Disciple. 
He said, holding on to the words you've spoken through the fight and the flames, I'm not alone. My hope in you is set in stone. So let the sky fall down, the earthquake shake the ground. Whatever comes my way, I know that I'm coming out the other side unbroken. The believer in Jesus Christ can say that, can know that. How does that affect our response to life? I think about a baseball game. I saw the end of last night, and you say, wait a second, that's a hard shift in gears. I know. But I have a purpose for it, and hopefully it'll come around. Our Cleveland Guardians used to be the Indians all my growing up years. They're playing the big bad Yankees with their big payroll. And last night, we're, we're in the second round of the playoffs with them. The series is tied 1-1. We're down in the ninth one run. Men on base and a guy named Oscar Gonzalez steps up to the plate. <laughs> There's our Cubs fan. He likes to talk about 2016. But are you in the playoffs this year? I'm rooting for you right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I'm sorry I said that then. Okay. <laughs> Bottom of the ninth, down a run, men on base. Oscar Gonzalez steps up there, hits a base hit. We get two runs. Pandemonium in Cleveland. And Prescott Valley. And Prescott Valley. <laughs> Did you feel the ground shaking? Yes, but Oscar Gonzalez, what hit me more than the event itself, that's the name of the batter that did it, was his interview afterwards. He speaks Spanish. And before they even translated his answer to some of the questions, I heard him say the name Senor, which caught my attention because I know that means Lord in English. And thankfully, the, the translator was there. One of the questions they asked him in one of the interviews after the game was, do you feel pressure in situations like that? And his answer was kind of shocking. He said, I don't feel any pressure. I just put the ball in play, try to put the ball in play, and leave the results in the hands of the Lord. I thought, man, he's just talking baseball right there, but what if we adopted that mindset for life? I'm going to try to take the pressure on my life of being God. God is God. I'm going to take what I know from here and ask his help through the risen Christ within me to obey him. And I trust the Lord with what happens. I'm going to put it fully in his hands. And I think about that, and I close from the book of Esther, way back at chapter, chapter 4. Mordecai said to her, Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? What if we had a group of believers in the church that rather than bemoan, the time of history that we live in, just embrace that. God has me here for such a time as this. Verse 15, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Like I said, I believe that fast represented dependence on the Lord. What if we depended on the Lord? for our days and our weeks and our months. Then she said, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. What faith? Just put her hands square in the hands of the Lord. 
What if you and I would do the same? May we follow in her footsteps. May we be those who, in addition, just lift our eyes to the God who does all that he pleases, whose purposes cannot be thwarted, who works all things together for the good of those who love him, whose ways are higher than our ways. May we put our lives in his hands and say, Lord, use me for such a time as this. Father, I thank you for this precious book of Esther that you've given to us. These folks are like me. We relate to it because we don't always or even often see the big flashy miracle. We know you still do them sometimes and we praise you for that. But we trust through this book that you are at work even in the seemingly mundane. You're in control. You're perfectly wise and you love us. Lord, as we think about those two decrees this morning, I pray that if there's anyone here still living under the decree of death, they see their need for the Savior, would you draw them to the foot of the cross? It's a simple invitation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Draw them to that decree of life. And those of us who are on that side of the decree of life, let us leave here with hearts celebrating that whatever clouds we find ourselves walking through, your majesty and wonder, your faithfulness and the truth of who you are remains constant and untouched. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.